In a small churchyard in a sleepy Sussex village lies a young RAF squadron leader, Ronald Sansom. He died in an air crash in 1942 on the banks of the River Wye in Wales. At the request of Winston Churchill, the circumstances of the crash and the death of squadron leader Sansom, his crew and four civilian observers remained secret until long after the war was over. But what was the secret, and why was it so important? My name is John Pope. I'm a volunteer speaker with the Commonwealth War Graves Commission and have an interest in ordinary men and women who served in extraordinary times. But who were they? Where did they come from? What did they do before the war? And why did they join up? Some were volunteers, and some were conscripts. Some had the time of their lives, while others were scarred mentally and physically, or simply failed to return home. They weren't all heroes, and they weren't all decorated. But for most, war at home and abroad was an experience which shaped them and changed them. Drawing on books, official records, internet resources, and personal recollections from friends and families, I've pieced together just some of the stories of those who served. Join me in this episode to learn more about squadron leader Ronald Sansom, RAF. Ronald John Denham was born in October 1917 in Maidenhead, Berkshire. His parents divorced when he was quite young, and his mother, Sophia, remarried Charles Sansom, CBE, a former colonial police commissioner, in what was then known as the Federated Malay States. After Charles retired, Ronald grew up with his mother and stepfather in the small village of Stenning, on the South Downs in West Sussex. When World War II started, Ronald Sansom joined the RAF, and by September 1941 rose to the rank of Flight Lieutenant, and by June 1942, he was gazetted as squadron leader. In May that year, he'd been posted to RAF Defford in Worcestershire as a liaison officer for the technical flying unit of the Telecommunications Research Establishment, responsible for radar research and development. One of its leading scientists was Bernard Lovell, the astronomer, from the University of Bristol and later the University of Manchester who worked with Alan Blumlein on the development of H2S. Alan Blumlein was an electronics engineer and a prolific inventor who studied at Imperial College and later worked for EMI. He was widely credited with the development of the 405 line system later used by the BBC for black and white television transmission up until 1985 and stereo sound recording, recording two channels into a single record groove. In just 13 years, Alan Blumlein had published over 120 patents, chiefly for electronic engineering inventions in radar, sound recording and television. H2S was the RAF Airborne Ground Scanning Radar System, developed to help identify targets on the ground or during bad weather or cloud cover. The origin of the term H2S 
was variously attributed to height to slope, or by some wags as the chemical formula of hydrogen sulphide, the rotten egg gas, much beloved of secondary school chemistry teachers. The rotten connection allegedly came from a story told by Reginald Jones, then director of the Air Ministry's Scientific Intelligence Unit. Apparently, a misunderstanding between the original developers and Frederick Lindemann, later Lord Cherwell, the science adviser to Winston Churchill, led to a delay in the development of the technology, as the engineers thought that Lord Cherwell was not keen on the idea. Later, when Cherwell asked how the project was going, he was angry to hear that it had been put on hold, and repeatedly declared that the delay stinks. The engineers called the resumed project H2S, and later, when Cherwell inquired what H2S stood for, no one dared tell him that it was named after his stinks phrase. Instead, they pretended that it meant home sweet home, which was the interpretation that Cherwell related to others. The H2S, however it derived its name, differed from other radar devices in that it used pulse detection systems and employed a newly developed valve called a cavity magnetron. It was then a key advance in radar technology and one which the RAF, the War Ministry and Churchill were keen to ensure remained top secret. Hitler was well aware of what they were doing, but was unsure how advanced they were. A photograph of the cavity magnetron can be seen on the episode extras page of the Those Who Served website. By May 1942, H2S was being tested, and as liaison officer, squadron leader Ronald Sansom was part of the team involved in the testing phase. He was the most senior officer leading a crew of eight, who operated a specially adapted Handley Page Halifax Mark II bomber, V for Victor 9977, stationed at RAF Defford. The H2S was housed in a nacelle below the fuselage, and much of the testing equipment occupied what would have previously been the bomb bay of the aircraft. His colleagues were a mix of flight crew and technical operators, including the pilot and co-pilot, pilot officer Douglas Berrington and flying officer Algie Phillips, warrant officer Gavin Miller, the observer, flight engineer leading aircraftsman Brian Deere, and wireless operator, aircraftsman second class, Bernard Bicknell. Throughout May, work on the H2S system continued to improve the effective range, and by early June it was achieving detailed radar output at distances of 25 to 30 miles. On the 6th of June, Bernard Lovell and the team met with Alan Blumlein and two colleagues from EMI to appraise the system prior to going into production. After the EMI team went to their hotel, Lovell flew in V9977 and observed strong signal returns from Gloucester, Cheltenham and several other towns at previously invisible ranges. To repeat the experiment, a second test flight was planned for the afternoon of 7th of June 1942, and squadron leader Ronald Sansom was joined by pilot officer Clifford Vincent and a science observer acting as an honorary flying officer, Jeff Hensby, and his three civilian science observers from EMI, Cecil Brown, Frank Blythen, and their chief engineer, Alan Blumlein. 
V for Victor 9977 took off at 2.50pm on the afternoon of 7th of June and flew west from RAF Defford towards the Bristol Channel. Its objective was to test the capability of H2S to detect surface structures as they flew over Swansea and Cardiff. However, at 15,000 feet a fire broke out in the inner starboard engine of the Halifax and the automatic extinguishers had no effect. The proximity of the fire to the supercharged fuel-air mix meant that the fire soon reached temperatures high enough to affect the main wind spar. Since there were insufficient parachutes for all on board, Pilot Officer Berrington sought a level place to crash-land the plane. Shortly after 4.20pm, farm worker Onslow Kirby, who lived and worked at Green Farm on Coppet Hill, reported hearing the roar of a low-flying aircraft coming from the direction of neighbouring English Bickner. As he turned to look, the Halifax, streaming fire and smoke from its starboard wing, appeared at no more than 350 feet above the trees along the River Wye. However, the fire had by now burned through the wing spar, and the wing fell off the plane, which turned it upside down, and it dived vertically into the ground, bursting into flames. All 11 people on board were killed instantly. The inferno that followed meant that little remained of the aircraft or the crew. As soon as the crash was reported, the area was sealed off. Vital equipment relating to the H2S, including the cavity magnetron, was recovered by Bernard Lovell and his team. And Lovell later wrote, Then reports of a crash in South Wales began to come in, and the rest of that night was just a nightmare. I was driven by the C&C of the aerodrome, a man called King, and winding through these lanes near Ross-on-Wye, searching for this wreckage, and then we found the field with the burnt-out Halifax, and of course it was wartime, there was no time for emotions. Our first duties were to search for the precious highly secret equipment, and collect the bits and pieces of it. Only the following day was the crash site turned over to RAF investigators, and the bodies of the crew and the civilian observers were recovered. The EMI team and Jeff Hensby worked closely with Bernard Lovell and had become close personal friends. Lovell would write later that he bitterly regretted their loss and the pain inflicted on the family and friends and the impact this had on the development of the radar system. The RAF incident report was completed within three weeks but its circulation was restricted on the insistence of Winston Churchill. The government feared that Hitler might be encouraged if he knew that the British efforts to develop radar had been stalled. As it was, the Luftwaffe captured an H2S set from a crashed RAF bomber in late 1943 and its importance sent shockwaves through the German Air Ministry. No official announcement of Alan Blumlein's death was made until 1944, by which time H2S was fully operational and was credited with playing a major role in the strategic bombing campaign against Germany Coastal Command's action against U-boats and target identification during the D-Day offensive. The Aviation Safety Report attributed the fire which caused the crash to improper tightening of a tappet valve nut which had unscrewed in flight, causing excessive valve opening and the failure of the valve stem. This allowed fuel to leak out of the rocker cover and ignite inside the engine nacelle. This report was part of that which was restricted 
and the absence of any definitive information soon gave rise to rumours of sabotage. Although the families of the eleven who died, including Ronald's stepfather and mother, Charles and Sophia Sansom, were notified, the role he had played at the telecommunications research establishment was omitted. Squadron leader Ronald Sansom was buried in the churchyard of St Andrews and St Cuthman's Stenning on the 14th of June 1942 by the Reverend Ernest Cox, who we heard about in last week's episode. In the grave register, Reverend Cox wrote, He was killed with ten others in Herefordshire when the plane caught fire at 15,000 feet and crashed. In 2002, exactly 60 years after the crash at RAF Defford, a memorial was unveiled by Sir Bernard Lovell on the village green. It commemorates those who lost their lives in accidents while carrying out scientific research. The dedication reads, To the memory of those Royal Air Force aircrew, scientists, engineers and civilian personnel who lost their lives in the furtherance of radar research while flying with the telecommunications flying unit, later the radar research flying unit, from RAF Defford, 1941 to 1957. I'd like to thank the Commonwealth War Graves Commission for access to their archive, the Forest Review, the Conversation, and the Blumline family for some of the photographs on the episode extras page on the Those Who Served website. I'd also like to thank the Free Library and my Commonwealth War Graves Commission Eyes on Hands on colleague, Carl Rusbridge, for further information relating to this story. Until next time, thank you for listening to Those Who Served, with me, John Pope. You can listen to the show via the website, or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or a host of other platforms. If you listen on Apple, please leave a review, as it makes the show easier for other Apple users to find. You can follow the show on social media, via Twitter, at Those Who Served, or on Instagram, those dot who served. You can show your support for this free podcast by clicking on buymeacoffee.com on the Those Who Served website. All funds are used to cover the costs of research, production and syndication. You can join in with the show by sharing what details you know of a family member or friend who served in a 20th century conflict. Contact me directly by email at info at thosewhoserve.co.uk Thank you.